Beginning in verse 31, it says, If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, And if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk. And grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place, And do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. Yet if they turn in their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, And pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions that they have committed against you. And grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be opened to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought out our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. When the book of Esther, Queen Esther learns of a plot to destroy all of her people, the Jews. And yet while she is the queen, she does not have the right 
or the privilege to go into the king anytime she wants. In fact, if the king Ahasuerus does not lift his wand in approval of her, she will immediately be put to death. Thus Esther calls on her people to pray and fast for three days before she goes to come before the king. And when she goes, by God's grace, he does welcome her. But it's a rather startling contrast when we consider that and what it takes to come before God. We're told to come boldly before the throne of grace. We're told to cast our anxieties on him for he cares for us. And we're even told to address him as Father. Not only does God beckon us with such welcoming terms, but he also tells us to call on him for all the issues of life. We see this here in Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. You know, a few weeks ago, we looked at where they brought up the Ark of the Covenant and where Solomon blessed God and remembered God promises to bring this to fruition. And then he prayed in amazement that the God who's omnipresent, who's everywhere, has made his presence more uniquely known at the temple, though not contained in the temple. And now Solomon turns in this prayer from praising God to giving seven petitions, seven requests that he's asking God to hear and answer for the people. As you look at your bolts and on the back, you can see there's kind of four sections of these. The first is calling on God for justice. Then in verses 33 through 40, we see calling on God for forgiveness and restoration. Third, in verses 41 through 43, calling on God for foreigners. And then lastly, 44 to the end, calling on God's help in war and exile. But it begins in verses 31 through 32 about if this man makes an oath and swears his oath before your altar, and then would God hear in heaven and act. Now the wording is a little bit hard to grasp, but the basic idea is there's a legal case, and it's brought before them and... They have no idea how to answer it. They're both saying, I'm right, and the other person's wrong. And Solomon's saying, God, would you intervene? Would you act in this situation where humans don't know? But would you condemn the guilty and uplift the righteous? And this is a prayer that we should be repeating often, for we often come across situations where we don't have enough evidence. You know, we live in an age that's quick to pronounce judgments. We see a video and all of a sudden we can determine who is right and wrong. We hear one comment online and we know, oh, that person's guilty. We see a link and we condemn or we condone. Yet if we're honest with ourselves and the facts, we often don't know. Yes, we should want justice to be done, but it's not always immediately clear what justice will look like since the situation is so muddled. And Solomon's prayer here, it's not a passive, well, God, you know, we can't make everything right, so you just do it. You know, he's not being ambivalent. He's talking about those situations, though, where it's just not clear. Those situations where he can't understand. And we don't have to think of this only in terms of major national issues. You walk into the kitchen and cookies are missing and everyone says, I didn't eat one. You go and you... Look in your garage and the door's open and everyone says, well, I didn't open the door. You walk to your car at the grocery store and there's a new dent that wasn't there before and no note and no cars around. And as humans, we're tempted to get bitter. 
We're tempted to seek revenge, to seek justice in our own terms. And yet God calls us, Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Ephesians 4, 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and malice and clamor and slander be put away from you. Now it's easy to say and talk about here at church, and yet we know that's hard to do. When we are wronged, we want justice to be done, to them at least. We want justice, and Solomon is not denying that. And yet what he's saying is, there are going to be times in life where I will never see justice on this earth. And so what am I going to do? Well, Solomon is saying, I'm going to pray to God, and I'm going to ask Him to make all things right. I'm going to know that God is working even in unjust times. So that Joseph can say, hey, y'all meant this thing for evil, but God meant it for good. And that God's working even through unjust situations. So we should seek the legal ways we can in our society for justice. But sometimes we have to go, Lord, I'm leaving this in your hands. Would you make this right? And Solomon wisely knows, though, that this justice is not just for those people out there, those horrible people. It's also... For us, because we see next in verses 33 through 40, three different pleas for forgiveness and restoration. This is the second section. Pleas are calling on God for forgiveness and restoration. And all of this section is dealing with national calamities. You can see this by looking in verse 33, because they are defeated in battle because they have sinned. In verse 36, the heavens are shut up because they have sinned. Verse 39, he lists this whole thing. And what's the solution? Well, if God hears and forgives. This whole section is dealing with them and their sin. It's important to realize here, Solomon is not ad-libbing. He's not improvising. He's not randomly coming up with, well, you know, we could sin and then we might be defeated in battle. Or we could sin and, well, then there will be a drought. No, he's referring back to what was read for us earlier, Deuteronomy 28. You could also see similar things in Leviticus 26, where God is saying, if you act in this way that's righteous, then I will bless you. If you act in this way that is sinful, I will curse you. For example, one of them, Deuteronomy 28, 25 says, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And that matches what Solomon says in verse 33. We're going to lose in battle because of our sin. And Solomon not only knew scripture, he also knew history. He knew the history of scripture. Because what happened to Israel when Achan sinned? They lost in battle. What happened in 1 Samuel 4 when they thought, you know, we don't really need to confess our sin. We got our God luck charm, the Ark of the Covenant. So holiness is not a big deal. We'll just bring the Ark of the Covenant. We'll win. And they lost in battle because sin brings a rupture in their and our relationship with God. And recognizing that then allows us to see four wonderful aspects of the way that God relates to them and to us. First, we see both here and in the New Testament that God will sometimes use affliction to discipline us. You know, God intends to discipline for his people to restore us. 
and correct us, not merely to punish us. In other words, God tries to teach his children through these circumstances, these situations. God's discipline is not him blowing off some steam, but over and over, God disciplines us to bring us back. Proverbs 3, which is quoted in Hebrews 12, says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now we need to be clear. The point is not that every trial in your life is God's discipline. For in a fallen world, sometimes we receive the collateral damage of someone else's discipline from the Lord. Sometimes we get sick, not directly because of some sin, but because we live in a fallen creation. Yet in those times when God does bring calamity in the ways that Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26 lays out, Solomon and the nation can know God is specifically doing this because we have sinned. Now how does that apply to the church? We'll see that in a few minutes. But second, we see from here that God welcomes repentant sinners. And may we never grow tired or treat as flippant the reality that God welcomes repentant sinners back. That he forgives them. Unlike our family members, unlike our co-workers, our friends, or maybe even ourselves, God does not hold grudges. He doesn't remember all the details of the past every time a new situation arises. God removes them as far as the east is from the west, and he longs for us to confess and repent. Now, just as Solomon didn't make up the punishments, he didn't make this up either. He didn't think, you know, I really hope that God is loving and forgiving, so I'm going to pray that way. No, God revealed himself to be this way. Exodus 34, when God passed before Moses, he declared his character by saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God reveals himself as I am a God who wants to forgive you. Will you come and repent? Now the rest of scripture, the rest of even Exodus 34 is clear. That doesn't mean that God overlooks our sin as though, well, that's no big deal. I just forgive sin. But rather, his holy character demands that it's punished. But that's what this temple is all about. Sacrifices that will come that point to the ultimate sacrifice of his own son. That we might be forgiven. And so Solomon here recognizes that, that they can plead with God and that God will turn and forgive them. And what must they do? Well, verse 38 is clear. They must know the afflictions of their heart. In other words, they must confess their sins. They must humble themselves. They must find confidence, it says, in God's name. That's their confidence. That's our confidence for forgiveness. Not that, well, I was really bad, but I've started doing a lot of good things since then. Our confidence is in God's name, God's character, that he loves to forgive. And this is marvelous, wonderful, amazing grace. The third thing this passage, this prayer is showing us is that there's an importance of intercessory prayer. What does that mean? Intercessory is pleading for someone else. Well, God normally works through the repentance of the nation. Look down at verse 38. Because there it talks about 
whatever plea is made by any man, singular, or by all your people, Israel. Sometimes God hears the intercessions of another and works in the behalf of people. This is what we see Abraham interceding for his nephew Lot, and God spares him. Moses coming down from the mountain, and Israel is worshiping the golden calves, and God is going to destroy them, and Moses intercedes, and God spares them. And the New Testament affirms the same things. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. And then it tells of Elijah who interceded for the nation. Thus may we too be interceding for our loved ones, our family members, our city, our nation, that God might come. You know, prayer is a battle. We are distracted in so many ways and the devil wants us to not be in prayer. And yet prayer is the tool, the means God has given us to cry out, to come to the one who can help us in our time of need. Well, the fourth thing we see from these verses here is that God's law did more than merely show them their, their sin and their need for a sacrificial lamb. Look at verse 36, because there it says, Then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk. Well, what's the good way in which they should walk? It's his law. In other words, here Solomon's praying what James will say in James 1.27. It's the perfect law of liberty. God's rules are for our good. They're not to harbor God's love. It's not to keep it back. He gives us rules because he does love us. And by following them, they bring us life. Now, how in the world can a rule bring liberty? Don't they just restrict us? Don't they just curb us and keep us in when we want to go out? Well, Keith has often shared the illustration. I think it's apt here that when they have children playing by a busy street and there's no fence, the children will all play near the center of the playground. But as soon as they build a fence, the children go everywhere. The boundary allows freedom. It allows going around and having more fun. Your laws, yes, they do restrict, but restrictions create wonderful opportunities. They allow us to do so many things. You may wish you could fly, and yet the law of gravity keeps you down. And yet the law of gravity allows you to dance, some of us at least, even to moonwalk, you might say. Yet as we apply these truths we can fall into many errors if we don't recognize two essential things about God's relationship with us. In preparing for this, I read a helpful discussion by John Piper who's entitled, What Old Testament Promises Apply to Me? And in it, he had some thoughts and some of mine mirror that. And the first is, as already noted, these blessings and curses were given specifically to the nation of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. We have to remember that this is written to the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy, Leviticus was written to the nation of Israel. Second, the coming of Jesus radically transformed and fulfilled the way we relate to the Old Testament covenant. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill 
And so Jesus didn't come and say, well, that Old Testament thing, that's no good. But rather, he had the Old Testament so that when he came, we would have categories. We would have ideas to understand what he came to do. Think of this passage here. What's going on? It's the sacrificial system. And every year they had these sacrifices. Every day they had these sacrifices. And every day they had to do them. And yet Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 says, Every priest stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now it's important to realize Jesus did not remove the sacrificial system. He fulfilled it. Sometimes Christians will say, well, the sacrificial system, that's gone. That's not necessarily wrong, but I think it's better to say, no, the sacrificial system is fulfilled. We still come to God through a sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. And yet it's that very fulfillment of the sacrificial system that leads to so many other changes. In his death, Jesus took the curses of the Old Testament. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus not only took the curse on the cross, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that now all the promises of God find their yes in him. Thus when we come to God through Christ, all the curses described were put on Christ. And all the promises come through Christ. And so I would say the promises, though originally given to Israel, are not limited to the nation of Israel. Rather, the promises of blessings are for all those who come to faith in Christ. That's why Galatians 3, 7-9 through 9 says, It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now we could expend here a long amount of details, but I personally believe that Romans 11 shows there are still distinct promises to national or ethnic Israelites. But that would be a long discussion, which we can pursue afterwards or over a meal if you want. But I think we need to realize, no matter where you come down on those issues, is that in Christ, the Old Testament system has radically changed. And now, God's people are from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not just the nation of Israel. And the New Testament's clear. Do I need to be circumcised? No. Do I need to follow the ethnic laws for eating and kosher food that the Israelites did? No. Those things are fulfilled in Christ. They are transformed. So that was a lot of information, but let me sum it up in two ways. First, we have to remember Israel, the nation, was under the Mosaic Covenant. And second, due to Jesus, these laws are fulfilled and transformed for all Christians of every nation. Perhaps it will be clearer if we look at two concrete situations. First, from 2011 to 2015, Wichita Falls endured one of the worst droughts it ever had. Was God cursing Wichita Falls in line with Deuteronomy 28 and right here, 1 Kings 8.35, when the heaven is shut up and there's no rain. Well, God did not communicate a covenant with 
the city of Wichita Falls, like he did the nation of Israel. Now, while the residents of Wichita Falls should and did pray, and we should, whenever we know sin, humble ourselves and confess that to God, that would not have guaranteed that rain would have then come. Because God did not give to Wichita Falls a unique covenant like that. Second, as Christians in the U.S. worry about our nation, they will often quote this verse I'm about to read, and it's what God replies in Second Chronicles to this exact prayer. There it reads, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That is a wonderful promise. But to whom was it given? Well, it was given to the nation of Israel. And he will heal their land. Whose land? The nations of Israel's land in Palestine. So yes, I drew four wonderful implications from this passage. I'm not saying we can't apply the Old Testament. It's very relevant to us today. My point is, we need to be cautious and not make one-to-one applications from, well, that's what it said there, this is what it means now, without first going through the cross of Christ and seeing what that means. Now, we should be clear. I believe we can argue, based on Scripture, that any nation that does humble themselves. Any nation that does pray and seek God's face will be blessed. But that blessing might not be economic. That blessing might not be political. It might be that as he blesses the nation in greater joy in him and delight, it continues to spiral into greater rebellion and punishment in other ways. And so please do humble yourselves and pray. I'm not telling you not to do that, but recognize The promises to the nation of Israel do not always apply to us in a one-to-one relationship. And so here, we're seeing that Jesus transforms these. And yet, this is not a new idea. Rather, this has been going on. We even see it in Solomon's prayer because notice this interesting part in verses 41 to 43 where Solomon has pleas or he calls on God for foreigners. So this is his fifth out of seven petitions in verse 41, he prays to God and he says, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake. Now, I wonder, as Solomon is praying this, were any of the Israelites looking up and looking at their neighbor going, Why is he praying for foreigners? What's he doing? Isn't he supposed to be praying for us? Now, maybe they wouldn't have been doing that then. I don't think they should have been doing that. But they definitely were doing it around the time of Jesus. The four Gospels show a clear hatred of Gentiles and the Samaritans. They wanted nothing to do with them. And whether they should have felt that way, they clearly should not have done so. Because as Galatians chapter 3, which we read earlier, quoted Genesis 12, there God's promise to Abraham included, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As well, God had blessed Jethro, the Midianite, Rahab from Jericho, Ruth from Moab, and even recently Hiram, the king of Tyre, because they had all worshipped the Lord. These were not minor figures. Jethro was Moses' father-in-law, and Moses married a midnight. Ruth was Solomon's great-great-great-grandmother. 
And so though God planned for salvation to be of the Jews, it was not only for the Jews. Rather, God planned to bless the world through the Jews. And Solomon here is recognizing that in his prayer. Israel should be longing for the nations to come so that they might worship the Lord with them. And sadly, though, we see with them, and even the church today, we go to two other extremes. Either we try to be like the world, and we mix our worship, where our worship, in order to not offend them, ends up not being distinctly Christian, and it ends up not honoring God. Or we want nothing to do with the world to such an extent that they don't want to come, because we have cast them out as outsiders, as those who are unlike us. Even today, we can unconsciously distort the gospel message into being about a certain class or a certain culture or a certain ethnicity. Billy Graham powerfully proclaimed in the 50s and 60s, he said, Jesus was not a white man. He was not a black man. He came from that part of the world that touches Africa and Asia and Europe. Christianity is not a white man's religion. It is not a black man's religion. And don't let anybody ever tell you that it's white or black. Christ belongs to all people. He belongs to all the world. And so that's why Solomon is saying here, the foreigner will come. The foreigner will come. Why? What does it say? Verse 42. For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. Well, how are they going to hear unless we tell them? And they won't hear unless we befriend them. And they won't see God's mighty hand in our life if we look just like the world in our actions, in our words, in our conduct. Yet when we return hate with love, when we return rudeness with compassion, mischaracterization with patience and respect, they might ask, how do you have the power to act that way to someone who is so mean to you? And we can tell them of God's outstretched arm that redeemed us and said, I can seek justice from God. I don't have to seek revenge. I can trust it to the living God who came and died for me and forgave me. So I can forgive others even of these horrible things they've done. Thus, may we not just tolerate, but may we seek out the foreigner, the stranger, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation may know and fear our great God. Do we want people different than us here? Would a single mom living in government housing be welcomed? And I just mean to a service, but welcome into your house. Spend time with you so that they are regularly with you. Would a woman wearing full Muslim garb be received with friendship? Would we be eager for them to come, or would we be grumbling about American policies that have allowed them to be here? Where would we go? Whether they're good or bad policies, they're here. And what a great gospel opportunity to get to know this woman who needs to know Christ. In other words, may our prayer and our desires be what God wants for all people, not just what we want. Well, Solomon ends his prayer with two final pleas we see in verses 44 to the end. Solomon's sixth request is he cries out to God that they would, he would go with them in their wars. Now we would come to all kinds of extremes if we didn't remember Israel's unique role as God's people, as his hand 
of judgment and blessing. And thus, this was not a blanket blessing, God, whatever we want to do. This is as we serve as your people going out, as you lead us, it says, would you bless us? Not only that, though, notice seventh and lastly, Solomon prays about them being defeated in battle. And also the whole country being taken captive to a foreign land. This would happen because, as Solomon notes, there's no one who does not sin. And again, I wonder, were they thinking, what are you talking about, Solomon? Are you like some massive Debbie Downer, negative Nancy? Here we are, the pinnacle of success. We have no wars going on. We've just built this massive temple for the Lord. Here we are to dedicate it to God. And you're praying about when we're going to go into exile? Like, why are you even talking about that? Why bring this up? Well, Solomon brings us up for the same reason at our weddings we vow to have and to hold for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, for sickness and in health, till death do us part. He prays it because it's the realization that everything's not as it's going to be at this moment right now. And so, will you be with us through the thick and thin? Your human nature leads us from not caring what God thinks to caring what others think. Our human nature leads us to be concerned only about ourselves. And Solomon, recognizing that, says, Lord, we may fall in these ways, and then would you bring us back? You know, I've known my own heart to pursue and do the very things I can say, well, you shouldn't do that. You know, I've known many people who say, I'll never do that again, to then look at that website or eat that food or blow up in anger again. You know, something in every person pulls us to do the very things that we can all say, you shouldn't do that. What is that? Well, it's sin, and Solomon is recognizing that and saying, God, would you restore us when we have been taken into exile? In verses 47 through 48, he's calling on God to do this if they turn in their heart, if they repent and they plead with God. You know, again, God's amazing forgiveness and grace is shining through. Later in the Old Testament, God's forgiving nature will be depicted through the prophet Hosea, who God tells to go marry this woman named Gomer, who repeatedly commits adultery against him. And yet Hosea keeps bringing her back. Gomer keeps pursuing these people who she thinks will bring life, and yet they only bring suffering. And yet Hosea lovingly brings her back. And in this, we see this dual nature because sin brings immediate, intense delight, but also inescapable, enduring destruction. And we really need to be honest about both because if we always like, oh, everything out there is horrible, and then our children taste it, they go, actually, this is pretty fun. You know, most people don't sin going, oh, I hate this. This is wretched, but I'm going to keep sinning. Yes, they may regret it, and yet sin brings joy for the moment. It then brings destruction, both in this earth and eternity afterward. It will not endure. The pleasures are fleeting. And yet our merciful God steps in and takes that destruction for us. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus our Lord. So don't believe sin's seductive lies. You don't have to wait till you're the prodigal fighting the pigs for the pods. 
You don't have to wait till you're in exile. You can confess and repent now. You don't need to wait till you've fallen that far. Repent of the desires now so they don't turn into the deeds later. You know, sometimes you have probably talked to people, I know I have, who believe this mistaken lie. Well, I'll get the boast of best of both worlds. I'm going to kind of live it up now. And then as I get older, I have kids, I'll settle down, and then I'll obey God. We'll go back to church. And yet, if that's your mindset, you'll never actually come to God. Because coming to God is not just obeying external rules. Coming to God is saying, you are the best. You are my master. You're my creator. And I joyfully submit to you. I don't come because I have to, because I don't want to go to hell. I come because you are the best thing in this universe. That's why 1 John 5 talks about those who know God keep his commandments. And then it says, and his commands are not burdensome. They're a joy to those who have truly come to God. Perhaps, though, your life already seems to be in exile, and sometimes to no fault of your own. The collateral damage and punishment on Israel occurred to the righteous remnant, too. Like Elijah and others during Ahab's day, you may be living in a land or a house of drought due to no fault of your own. Your loved one has gone off to the far country and is in exile. Then remember the amazing words of Solomon in verse 38 of anyone calling to God, anyone interceding for the other. We, didn't, we see these intercessory prayers not only with Moses, not only with Abraham, but also Daniel chapter 9. As he faces Jerusalem as they're in exile and he prays. And then we see those intercessory prayers by Nehemiah at the beginning of the book where he prays and God brings them back out of exile. And so God hears these prayers and he brings restoration. As well, notice in verse 50, because there these prayers will cause these people, their own people have taken them into exile, the oppressors, and will lead them to be compassionate to Israel. What is that showing us? It's showing us that God rules over every heart. There is no person who has gone too far. There's no person who is out of the reach of God's grace. No human, not even the most violent, cruel, and evil person you know is beyond God's help. So would you intercede for them now that they might come back to the love of the Father? And the Solomon prayer holds out both realities. The reality that we might, we will rebel, and the reality that God will bring restoration and revival. Exile does not have to have the final word, for Jesus came and conquered sin and death, and he still changes hearts. And that Solomon even reminds him of that twice in these final words. He reminds him of Egypt. In other words, God, you brought us out of exile before. You can do it again. Will you do it again? Thus Solomon shows us how to plead with God. And yet we have something greater than Solomon. We don't need to pray to a physical temple. We have something better than Esther. We don't have to hope that the ruler will give us access. We are able to come boldly to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. 
any time. You can come through Christ and find that help. Many of us learned a lot about ourselves this week as we lost power, water, lacked food. I learned something about my house. We lived there through five winters, and every winter, or every day, I've seen this thing in our bathroom and thought, we'll probably need to replace that one day. And then as our power went out and temperatures keep going, my neighbor says, oh, I turned on our heater in our bathroom. And I was like, that's a heater. I wonder if that works. I didn't want to blow up my house, so I called him over and said, hey, can you try and light this thing? He turned it, lit a match, and heat. For five years, we had access to heat. We never tapped into it. At any moment, you have access to the throne of the creator of the universe. You could be living with it forever. You don't know it's there. Just turn the dial. Just come to God in prayer. Plead with him. He loves. He's beckoning us to come and pray. So will you come and intercede for yourself and others that... His glory might be known, that there might be good for us on earth. Let's pray right now. Oh Lord, we do go so often not tapping in to you, so to speak. Not even recognizing that you are there and eager and willing to hear our prayers. Oh Lord, we come right now asking, pleading that you would work in us. Lord, give us a dependence on you day by day, moment by moment. Help us to be people who show that it is not by our strength, our wisdom, or our power, but it is only by you that we move and live and have our being. May you be honored in and through us. Your son's name we pray. Amen.